Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual thanks to the photographer who took the photograph which adorns the cover art of the pod. That was Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been very busy week this week. There's a lot to wade through, so let's get on with it. There's a bit of sanctions news, including more from the EU, a load of money laundering, both in the UK and beyond, a couple of interesting bits on fraud and bribery, and we end with a bit on cyber and ransomware. We'll start, as we normally do, with sanctions. This week in the United Kingdom, the Office of Sanctions Implementation has issued a license permitting humanitarian activity to be undertaken by relevant persons in Ukraine and non-government controlled Ukrainian areas. Relevant persons for the purposes of the license, by way of example, are the United Nations, its agencies, funds, programs and appeals partners, uh, any organisation participating in UN humanitarian response plan processes for Ukraine, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and the International Federation of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent Societies. There are others, and they're pretty much as you would expect to see in the context of humanitarian aid. It is to be noted that the funds used for the humanitarian purposes designated in the license cannot be derived from funds or economic resources owned, held, or controlled by a designated person, namely one subject to sanctions. This is something that is done and is quite common in relation to sanctions and I think I there was a story in an earlier edition of the financial crime weekly pod where we noted that the EU, uh, the EU the European Union had done something very similar sticking with the uh, office for sanctions implementation uh, it has contributed to a document published under the auspices of the National Economic Crime Center which is the multi-agency unit in the National Crime Agency and Her Majesty's Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI. The document aims to provide businesses with information on sanctions evasion typologies by use of examples to guide detection. It's quite a useful document, and if you work in this area, I'd certainly recommend looking at it. There's detail on detection of frozen asset transfers, enablers, suspicious payments, and the provision of industry recommendations. The detection of frozen assets may be indicated by the movement of assets previously associated with a designated person, their family members, or otherwise on their behalf, such as the sale of high-value assets, yachts, although there must be a very limited market for luxury yachts, valuable artworks, and so on, where the funds are then dispersed in offshore financial centres through secrecy, secrecy jurisdictions. Frankly, that's but a flavour of the content of the document. There's way too much to go into in a short podcast, but the full document, should you wish to have a look at it, and if you work in sanctions, I would certainly advise it. It's available on the National Crime Agency website. Finally, on sanctions in the UK this week, the Treasury Select Committee has published a letter received from the Chief Executive Officer of the Financial Conduct Authority, Nikhil Rathi who was responding to the committee's continuing inquiry into the effectiveness of the Russian sanctions regime. This is something that we've looked at previously on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, at least two episodes where we've considered evidence provided to the Treasury Select Committee on the efficiency and effectiveness of the sanctions. 
The letter covers a broad range of matter relevant to the role which the Financial Conduct Authority has in monitoring the sanctions compliance of regulated firms. This includes current levels of awareness and compliance with the sanctions regime, the work done by the Financial Conduct Authority in advance of the sanctions regime, what the Financial Conduct Authority does in terms of its contribution to the design of the sanctions regimes, and intelligence sharing with the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI. In terms of specific issues with the expanded sanctions regime following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it provides an overview of the Financial Conduct Authority's response, the specific role of the Financial Conduct Authority in aiding the design of these sanctions, whether groundwork was done in advance, and how the Financial Conduct Authority has improved the awareness of regulated firms of the new sanctions so that their systems and controls are effective to meet them. The final elements of the letter relate to the work the Financial Conduct Authority is doing to monitor potential conduct and prudential risk. The work being done to monitor the wider impact of the sanctions, for example, on commodity prices, and you'll have seen that in the industry and the mainstream media, how commodity prices have risen following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And one final point, uh, how crypto assets might be used to evade sanctions. Indeed, as you'll see over the course of this podcast, in fact, I could have labelled this the crypto assets episode. That's it for the UK on sanctions. Let's look beyond the UK now and see what's been happening there, mostly in the European Union. So first, news comes of a more aggressive attitude from the institutions of the European Union towards firms breaching the sanctions regime. Now, this is nothing new. The European Union has started to get more aggressive in its approach to sanctions You'll remember that last week we reported on the proposal to make sanctions breaches a consistent EU criminal offence. Well, this week, the European Securities and Markets Authority has announced that firms which breach EU sanctions may suffer the consequence of a refusal of prospectus approval, and further, that national competent authorities may seek to ascertain an issuer's compliance with the European Union's sanctions regime on submission of a prospectus. This is a significant move and a reminder to the compliance function to see that sanctions are observed and further that compliance may affect all aspects of their business. Further EU news this week, the European Commission published further guidance on the transport of goods by road between Russia and the Kaliningrad Oblast through EU territories. Such movements are prohibited under EU restrictive measures. And finally, the EU looks likely to be in a position to announce a seventh package of Russian sanctions next week after agreement has been reached by the bloc. I think there was a draft document published on Friday, something which I retweeted. So that's something to look forward to next week. We don't want to spoil all the fun for next week, so we'll draw a line under sanctions for this week and turn our focus towards money laundering, where it's been a really, really busy week. So first, and linked to a story from last week, the United Kingdom continues to amend its legislation to reflect changes internationally from work undertaken by the Financial Action Task Force. You'll recall that the FATF announced 
some movement in its high-risk jurisdictions list, list following the Berlin plenary on the 17th of June 2022. While the UK has amended the Money Laundering Regulations 2017 by the, terrorist, uh, the Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing High-Risk Countries uh, Regulations 2022 number 762, if you want to check them out, what they do is they up, update the list of high-risk countries. The list, broadly speaking, covers all the countries announced by the Financial Action Task Force as being subject to increased monitoring, but it adds two furthers, or, well, they were already there, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea or North Korea and Iran, which have always been a particular bête noire to certain countries, uh, particularly the UK and the US. Now, these regulations, these update, this updated list came into force on the 12th of July 2022, of course, worth noting that Malta was taken off the list by this amendment because Malta was removed from the list at that Berlin plenary by the Financial Action Task Force. Now, the National Crime Agency has also been busy this week. In addition to the sanctions, evasions, typologies paper, which I discussed earlier, the National Conduct Authority, uh, sorry, the National Crime Ag uh, Agency, sorry, it's the heat. The National Crime Agency has published the United Kingdom Financial Intelligence Units magazine, SARS in action. SARS, of course, are suspicious activity reports. The magazine covers a range of issues, including professional money launderers, SARS reform, and the UK FUI cryptocurrency engagement. I'm not going to say much about that, but just a couple of things. Professional money launderers provide services to organised crime groups by laundering the proceeds of their crimes. Consequently, they pose a threat to the financial system and, of course, to the integrity of the United Kingdom as a place in which to do business. The magazine explains how the National Crime Agency is working to counter the operations of these professional money launderers by encouraging sector operatives both uh, by engaging rather sector operatives both domestically and internationally. In terms of SARS reform. This is something which is clearly on the policy agenda at the moment and which we discussed last week in the Financial Crime Weekly. Following the recent engagement survey, a new engagement function is being established within the United Kingdom's Financial Intelligence Unit to support and collaborate with stakeholders in order to improve the quality and exploitation of SARS. There are other bits and pieces worth reading in the document including some SARS case studies, which are particularly valuable. So if you get the chance, pop along to the National Crime Agency's websites and download it to view. It's only 14 pages, so a bit of light reading over a bit of coffee and cake. We've reported in previous weeks on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast on the activities of the United Kingdom Parliament Treasury Select Committee, especially in relation to the effectiveness of the UK sanctions regime, and I mentioned that again earlier in this week's Financial Crime Weekly. Well, this week, the UK committee has launched an inquiry into the crypto asset industry. The process has been started with a call for evidence, which seeks views on a broad range of issues relating to crypto assets. While covering the possible benefits which crypto assets might bring, there's also a focus on the risks which they might pose, especially as, uh, of course, a money laundering risk. The call for evidence, if you want to contribute to it, closes on the 12th of September 2022. Now, let's stick with crypto. Since it's clearly heavily on the policy agenda, government and policymakers have been spinning about this for a while now. 
the chief executive of the Financial Conduct Authority, Nikhil Rathi. He's back. He's been, has been, had a busy week. He's delivered a wide-ranging speech at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, where he spoke about the opportunities and risks of crypto, reflecting on the recent Crypto Sprints event. Feeding back on the event, uh, Rathi indicated that participants in the event were keen to see a regulatory regime for crypto assets, preferring a regulated, a regulated as opposed to a regulation-light environment. This might come as something of a surprise, especially since the industry press tends to prefer a more laissez-faire approach. At least that's the impression that I get. He indicated further that the participants wanted a phased introduction to regulation, which, of course, gives market operators time to prepare and to ensure that the rules align with the continually evolving nature of crypto assets. Obviously, the work of the United Kingdom Parliament Treasury Select Committee may be valuable in this regard. As Lenin said, everything is connected to everything else. One final point on the crypto discussion before uh, a footnote. This week, it's been reported variously across industry and mainstream press, as it happens, that the upheaval in the British political system, with the apparent resignation of the Prime Minister and the subsequent internal party election to replace him, will cause the government to lose some focus on the regulatory changes on crypto and other important aspects of finance. Now, there may be something in this, because it was also announced this week that the online safety bill is being spiked until September 2022. Apparently, there's a problem with ministers not being available. But I'm half beginning to wonder now whether some of these problems are being overblown. First, the UK parliamentary recess, essentially their summer holiday, is due to start on the 21st of July, less than a week away. So not much work would be done anyway especially with reports that some government ministers are also demob happy at this point. Secondly, as mentioned earlier, the Treasury Select Committee is not going to start its work on crypto, which will undoubtedly make a valuable contribution to the narrative until September at the very earliest. So moves in this area were always going to be delayed by the summer. Now, the footnote I promised. One footnote to the speech by Rathi, which... Uh, also mentioned that the fact that the Financial Conduct Authority has invested heavily in data uh, and technology to scan over 100,000 websites daily to check for fraud. Now, this is something which I've already discussed on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and if you want to throw yourselves back to episode 11, uh, sorry, episode 12, uh, you'll see that. Uh, I reported on in that episode on the Financial Con- Conduct Authority's updated data strategy for 2022. So, One thing I think we can take from this, it's good to see the Financial Conduct Authority delivering on its three-year strategy, and I expect the next strategy or document to make a lot of this. Now, again, news which links back to previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly relating to the implementation of the Register of Overseas Entities. This is something that I've trailed a number of times over a number of weeks. You'll recall that the secondary legislation necessary for the nuts and bolts of the creation of the register is currently in the process of drafting and being laid before Parliament. We also mentioned that two blog posts had been published on the Companies House website with updates on the legislation and its elements. Well, the blog bug has bitten Her Majesty's Land Registry, which has published a fairly extensive post on the register and how it affects land transactions. The post provides clear guidance to the affected sectors, outlining the principal changes which the register will make 
to registration of title with the Land Registry. It provides that an overseas entity must obtain an overseas entity identification if they wish to be registered at the Land Registry as the proprietor of the land. The Land Registry is clear that it must reject a land registration application for an overseas entity where an overseas entity identification has not been provided. The prohibition is a strong one, though there are exceptions listed in the uh, documentation. One final bit this week, and it, it may need a special because there's a lot to get my head around on this one, but this week the Treasury published an impact statement, the UK Treasury published an impact statement um, on the draft money laundering regulations 2022, while the Regulatory Policy T Committee seems to have criticised them as not being fit for purpose. So there's quite a bit to unpick there. Thought I'd do a special on it. I think it will be out on Friday this week, so look out for that. Away from the UK and across to the Republic of Ireland, where the Central Bank of Ireland has reminded virtual asset service providers of the importance of ensuring that their firms are not used as a vehicle for money laundering or terrorist financing. The anti-money laundering or countering the financing of terrorism obligations under the Irish Criminal Justice Act 2010 have been applied to uh, VASPs, that is, uh, virtual asset service providers, since 2021. On application for registration with the central bank, VASPs must be able to demonstrate the extent to which they will comply with AML and CFT obligations to which they will be subject. Of the applications currently under review, the central bank has provided feedback to 90% of uh, them on their proposed AML and CFT frameworks. The press release which accompanied this story provides the following, and this is a direct quote, effective regulation to prevent financial crime supports innovation in new markets such as virtual assets. The central bank seeks to ensure that regulated financial service providers have the necessary risk culture and risk and control frameworks in place to minimize the risk of the use of their products or services by criminals for the purposes of money laundering and terrorist financing. Now, quite a lot has been churning over in the EU. Uh, the Commission has opened a consultation on proposals to deal with those who enable tax evasion and aggressive tax planning. The consultation preamble provides that some enablers design market and uh, some enablers design market and help set up structures in non-EU countries that erode member states' tax bases through tax evasion or aggressive tax planning. Such structures may use entities without minimal substance in order to take advantage of differences between national tax systems or tax treaties. In terms of policy options, three are proposed. Well, actually, it's four, but the fourth one seems a bit of an afterthought. Anyway, we'll say four. First, a requirement that all enablers carry out dedicated due diligence procedures. Secondly, a prohibition on the facilitation of tax evasion and aggressive tax planning combined with due diligence. Thirdly, requiring all enablers to sign up to a code of conduct. A fourth option, which, as I said, sounds like an afterthought, would require EU taxpayers, both individuals and entities, that is artificial individuals, so corporations, to declare in their annual tax return any participation above 25% of shares, 
voting rights, ownership interests, bearer shareholdings, or control by other means in a non-listed company located outside of the European Union. The consultation closes at midnight Brussels time on the 12th of October 2022. So if you have a few hours to spare in the summer, perhaps your holiday flight has been cancelled. Pop your thoughts in the online form and send them to the Commission. Sticking with the EU this week, Elizabeth, Elizabeth McCall, who we featured in other episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly, she's an ECB supervisory board member, gave a speech entitled Technology is neither good nor bad, but humans make it so, at a conference on the, artificial, uh, the use of artificial intelligence to fight financial crime, which was organised by Intesa San Paolo. The speech covered a broad range of issues. McCall commented that, and this is a direct quote, Technological solutions offer the possibility to deliver tremendous benefits and we should be ready to harness them. But any technology solution needs to be buttressed by three pillars. An appropriate regulatory framework, sufficient supervisory oversight and a deep understanding by users, banks and supervisors alike, not only of the potential but also the limitations and risks of new technologies. Set against this, McCall reasserted the commitment to having a robust anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism regime across the bloc. Central to this are a single, consistent rulebook, strong supervisory teams with a strong supervisory culture, and a clear cooperative dialogue between potential and conduct supervision. In terms of the digitization of AML and CFT, McCall stated that some companies may fall outside the AML directive and others, particularly fintech firms, may have inadequate appreciation of AML and CFT obligations. Of course, and in the context of a lot of what has been said in this edition of the podcast, concerns were also voiced about crypto assets and the traceability of such transactions having the potential to undermine much of the work of AML and CFT regimes. Further, and specifically on artificial intelligence, McCall noted that it's already in use by banks in, for example, credit scoring, but that its possible lack of transparency and explicability could undermine the potential of artificial intelligence in AML and CFT contexts. This in turn could pose operation, uh, operational and reputational risks, though I would add to that. It, I think it also poses a legal risk too. One footnote to this is why McCall criticised the lack of transparency and uh, explicability in AI decision-making. Well, it was down to reports that the use of AI perpetuates racial, gender or other forms of discrimination. I don't know whether this is the case, but it may be interesting to note this week that the United Kingdom Information Commissioner has announced an investigation into whether AI systems show racial bias in job application processes. This is something which the ECB may want to bear in mind since McCall also announced in this speech that the ECB uses an AI platform to help it conduct its fit and proper person assessments. Lot to mull there. Let's move on to fraud. And this week it was a big story, a big story concerning Bernie Eccleston, the former head of Formula One. Now, I reckon this news will cause a bit of a flutter in all the dovecuts of the rich and famous. Uh, it's been widely, widely reported, you can you stumble over this news everywhere in the press, that Bernie Eccleston, the former 
head of Formula One has been charged with fraud by false representation under Section 2 of the Fraud Act 2006 in the United Kingdom. This follows an investigation by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs which relates to alleged undeclared overseas assets valued at over £400 million. Andrew Penhale, who is the Chief Crown Prosecutor for the CPS Serious Economic Organised and International Directorate, stated in the press release that, and I quote, the CPS has reviewed a file of evidence from HMRC, that's Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, and has authorised a charge against Bernard Eccleston of fraud by false representation in respect of his failure to declare to HMRC the existence of assets held overseas believed to be worth in excess of £400 million. The decision to charge comes after what was described as a complex and worldwide criminal investigation by HMRC's Fraud Investigation Service. Eccleston was, until 2017, the head of Formula One when it was purchased by Liberty Media, uh, and frankly, he's no stranger to the media. Recently, against uh, a background of almost universal ostracism of Putin following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Eccleston came out and described him, that is Putin, as a first-class person for whom he would take a bullet. If that should be considered odd, Eccleston does have a bit of a history in the odd commentary on despot stakes. In 2009, The Guardian reported that Eccleston said that Hitler was able to get things done and that Eccleston preferred strong leaders. Well, I suppose that all depends on the definition of strength which one uses. The first hearing in the case is at 10am on the 22nd of August at Westminster Magistrates Court. Bribery. Brief bribery story from the US, where the State Department has named Richard Nephew as its new global anti-corruption coordinator. The position, announced on International Corruption Day, will integrate and elevate the fight against corruption across all aspects of US diplomacy and foreign assistance, or at least that's what the press release said. Nephew is an expert on sanctions and authored The Art of Sanctions. He took up his post on the 5th of July 2022. And finally, the words you've all been aching to hear. A bit of a cyber and ransomware story. Now, this is an interesting one. This week, the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK, along with the Information Commissioner's Office, issued a joint statement on the legal advice law firms should provide to clients subject to ransomware. It would seem that firms needed reminding to advise clients not to pay ransom demands following a cyber attack. The joint statement provides, and this is again a quote, paying ransoms to release locked data does not reduce the risk to individuals, is not an obligation under data protection law, and is not considered as a reasonable step to safeguard data. The ICO has clarified that it will not take this into account as a mitigating factor when considering the type or scale of enforcement action. It will, however, consider early engagement and cooperation with the NCSC, that's the National Cyber Security Centre, positively when setting its response. This is an important and timely reminder. Cyber and ransomware remain significant threats to the public and private sectors, and by advising the payment of ransoms to victims, there is a risk that it will encourage the perpetrators to further attacks. That's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'll be back on Friday with that special, and then, as usual, the following Sunday with the Standard Weekly. 
If you want to subscribe, you can do wherever you get your podcasts. Otherwise, see you next week.